All right, Matthew 16, we'll pick up in verse 13, and then we'll read to the end of the chapter. There it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be, have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here, who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Shall we pray? <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time to meet together tonight and to open your word. And we do pray that uh, you would teach us and guide us into all uh, truth. Lord, that you would give to us your wisdom and understanding. Lord, help us to see that uh, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and then enter into his glory. And just as it was necessary for our Lord Jesus Christ to carry and to bear his cross, and he did not despise it, but he willingly and joyfully took it upon himself. So, Lord, also we must be willing to bear our cross in this life, that we must suffer with him if we desire to be glorified with him. Lord, help us to see that uh, there's nothing in this life that is worth losing our soul over, so that we would... Uh, be willing to count the cost, and Lord, do those things that are pleasing to you. So, Father, we pray that you would uh, give us this mind, and Lord, help us in our life uh, to obey you, and Lord, to follow you, even if it means going to our death. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, we began this passage last week where you have this confession in verses 13 to 20 of Peter of who Jesus Christ is, dealing with the identity of Christ, right? Which is very important. This actually goes along perfectly with what we're studying in Hebrews, because Hebrews is all about the identity of Christ, that if we do not identify him correctly, then we will not have any benefit from his ministry, from his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. And this was essentially the question that Jesus proposed to his disciples. It's concerning the identity of the Son of Man. Who do people say that I am. What is the prevailing common opinion of the people concerning Jesus, the Son of Man? And this is when they say, John the Baptist, others Elijah, some Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then he asks them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter gives this confession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That this was what they believed. He was the promised Christ, who also was the Son of the living God. That they rightly understood that the Messiah was indeed God in human flesh. And this is what they believed concerning Jesus Christ. And that leads Jesus then to point out the fact that this understanding did not originate in Peter or any other disciple, but rather it was given to them as a gift from God, that God must reveal these things by his spirit. We cannot come to the right understanding of the person of Christ, though the information is in the Bible. The knowledge is there in the Bible, but a person cannot understand it unto true faith apart from the work of the Spirit. God must reveal it, and he does so to those whom he has chosen. It must come from the Father who is in heaven. And then he says that this 
is the rock upon which he will build his church. Not meaning the person Peter, and not meaning the Pope, who is the successor of Peter according to false Roman Catholic theology, but rather this belief and understanding that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that he is the only source of salvation for all who will believe. And when this gospel is preached, the gospel of Christ, and people believe, then as the apostles and as the church are preaching the gospel, when a person repents and believes, then that person uh, is admitted into heaven. That person becomes a child of God. And if a person rejects and they pronounce judgment upon him, then that person is bound in his sin and in judgment. This is the authority granted to them, not an authority that is independent of God or of Christ, but a subjugated authority given to them insofar as what they are doing is consistent with the will of God, then they do possess this authority according to God's word, and so does the church today. Then in verse 20, he warns the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Not because Jesus is seeking to hide his identity. Well, he came to reveal his identity. But because the people do not have a proper expectation of the Christ. Because the people are unbelieving, their expectation of the Christ is twisted and corrupt. And this same corruption is also even in the minds of the apostles in some regard. Not fully, but in some regard, this is in their mind as well. And that's what happens in verses 21 to 23. Unbelief regarding Christ. He, what he's rightly identified Christ, right? So we have to understand his person, but we also have to understand his work, his ministry. His person and his work go together. Peter's right on the person, but then he's wrong on the work. He's wrong on the work. And so let's go then to verse 21. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the last day. Here, from this time, not that he hasn't talked about this before, but he begins to speak of this more frequently, more intentionally with his disciples because he's preparing them for what is about to take place, right? As they cl get closer to his death and resurrection, he's speaking more frequently, more poignantly with them about these topics so that they're prepared and their mind is rightly fixed upon these realities. So he's showing them what must happen when they go to Jerusalem, right? There is a time coming when he will go to Jerusalem for the final time, the time that his day draws near, this day of his death. And when he goes to Jerusalem, there are going to be uh, many sufferings that he must endure. He must suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, that the instigators of this suffering will be the Jewish authorities, the Jewish leaders. Not that they were the only ones involved in this. Certainly the Romans played their part, but in terms of instigation, in terms of the ones who uh, handed him over to the Romans, it was the Jewish people and the Jewish authorities, their own leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. They will hand him over, and then he will be killed and be raised up on the last day. So Jesus is clearly here preaching his death and his resurrection before it takes place, right? This is happening before it actually is accomplished, right? Now, I say that because many people believe that no one knew about the death and resurrection of Christ before it happened. This is commonly believed in many seminaries. It's taught, many pastors believe it, that no one knew and understood that the Old Testament taught a conquering Messiah, a conquering king that would come in and usher in this kingdom of prosperity, right? Uh, that they would th overthrow the Romans or whoever was the oppressor of the Jews and establish an earthly kingdom. This is what many people believe. And even some would say that this is what the Old Testament promised concerning the Messiah. And because the Jews rejected Jesus as this Messiah, then Jesus could not establish his earthly kingdom at that time. And then he had to move on to this spiritual kingdom to the Gentiles as a result of his death and resurrection. This is what is commonly taught in dispensationalism. But here we see that the death and resurrection of Jesus 
It was clearly taught before it happened. This isn't an afterthought. It isn't uh, an appendix to the purpose and plan of God. But this is the very reason why he came into the world. And that they weren't expecting it isn't because it wasn't taught or was unknowable from the Old Testament or from the mouth of Christ, but it's because they didn't want to believe it. They didn't want to entertain this fact, this idea that Jesus would suffer and die. So here, clearly, he is preaching his death and resurrection, right? And again, the idea that no one knew or that it was a surprise or that the Old Testament promoted and promised a conquering Messiah and not a suffering one is contrary to the very ministry of Christ and here his own words to his disciples. Even his opponents knew that he was preaching his death and resurrection. Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, 62 to 65. Here we see that the, re the religious authorities knew and understood that Jesus was preaching his death and resurrection. That this was central to his public ministry, his preaching ministry. Matthew 27, verse 62. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore give orders for his grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He is risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard? Go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard they set a seal on the stone. So there, the Pharisees and the chief priests go to Pilate and say, we know that this deceiver was saying that after three days I'm going to rise. Well, he's preaching his death and resurrection. They know that he's preaching his death and resurrection. This is their impetus for wanting to put a guard and a seal on the tomb, was to prevent his disciples from stealing the body and then the last deception would be greater than the first. Now, that was their intention. According to the will of God, the intention was to give further proof of the veracity of the resurrection of Christ. Because how could the disciples come steal the body if there's a guard there? It would be impossible, right? It would be impossible for them to do so. So what is the explanation that he rose from the grave? Okay, so there, even his opponents, even the unbelieving Jews, knew that this is what Jesus was teaching, his death and resurrection. So then, we have to ask the question, then why are the disciples slow to believe these things? Why does Peter rebuke Jesus for preaching his death and resurrection to them? Why did they not understand this? Well, first, a couple of passages. John chapter 20. John chapter 20. The point I'm making here is... The unbelief of the disciples or the slowness of the disciples to believe these things was not a lack of information. It's not that the Old Testament failed to prepare them or Jesus failed to teach that this information was unknowable until after the resurrection. That's not the issue. The Old Testament predicts in many places the death and resurrection of Christ. It was their own unbelief that kept them from seeing these things. And that was also because... God did not give it to them. God didn't give it to them, though they themselves are to blame. John 20, verse 9, it says, For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. There, they did not understand the scripture. Now, he doesn't say the scripture didn't say this. He didn't say new novel interpretations of the scripture had not yet been given, but they did not understand the scripture. He didn't say that they weren't taught these things. They were taught these things, but they didn't understand them. They didn't understand them fully. They did partially. They did in some regards, but they did not fully comprehend, and their faith was not yet settled on these points. It was still shaky. It was still shaky. They were facilitating between these two opinions, okay? But they need to be firm and solid and immovable on these points. Luke chapter 9, and this is also common in our own life as well, isn't it? Don't we find that there are times where 
they are issues that we are trying to understand, that we are growing in, and that we don't fully comprehend or understand something. And it may take us two or three or four uh, readings, teachings. We need to hear it again. And then all of a sudden it finally clicks. And then it clicks and then it's like, okay, now I understand. Now it makes sense to me, right? Before it made sense in some time regards, but I still was cloudy or confused here and there. But now it's clear to me. This is how it was with the disciples. Luke chapter 9, verses 44 and 45. says, Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this statement. So there, that's very clear. He's even telling them, Let it sink into your ears. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Right? Not so they can praise him, but so they can kill him. So they can crucify him. But they don't understand it. It's concealed from them. Who concealed it? God. God concealed it from them. So that they would not perceive it. Though they themselves are still responsible. Right? That's why Jesus rebukes them in Luke 24 and says, Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Luke 18. Luke 18, 31. Luke 18, 31 says, Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Now, we'll stop there for a second. Is that... Uh, obscure or unclear what he's saying. It's very, very clear what he's saying there. He's giving specific details about what is going to happen. One, he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. Handed over by whom? Well, by the Jews. The Jewish authorities will hand him over to the Gentiles, the Romans. He will be mocked, mistreated, spit upon. They're going to scourge him, then kill him, and then on the third day, he will rise again. So he's speaking very plainly to them, right? This is not in riddles or dark sayings. He's speaking directly, plainly to them about his death. But then verse 34, but the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things that were said. So again, they didn't understand it. And who hid it from them? God. God hid it from them temporarily. Temporarily, he hid it from them so that they did not comprehend the statement. God's design was for them to be confused and cloudy on these issues before, but then crystal clear afterwards. Luke 24, Luke 24, 44. Luke 24, 44. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem, and you are witnesses to these things. So here, the difference is he opened their mind. He opened their mind to understand. Then they are understanding these things clearly. Again, not that they didn't before in some regard. They have to understand it in some regard, or they couldn't be believers. You can't be a Christian without believing the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. But dealing with the reality of that, as it comes to their relationship to Christ, his being crucified in Jerusalem, they're not wanting to deal with that, right? They don't want to deal with it because they don't want him to leave. They like being with him. They like, uh, you know, going place to place with him and being in his presence. But here now they understand it and they're going to go out and preach it into the world. Okay, so this is why then they're not comprehending these things. It's being spoken to them. It's being revealed to them but they are not 
yet understanding them rightly. And this leads to verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Here, Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him, which should be a red flag right there, right at the beginning. That This is not a good thing to do, right? If, if what you said is true, if this is your true belief, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Does Peter mean that when he says it up in verse uh, 16? Yes, he does. He, Of course he believes that. God has revealed it to him. Well, if that's your belief concerning Jesus, then how can you take him aside and rebuke him? Right. So what's happening here? This is the way it is. It's temporary unbelief. We are two steps forward, one step back. This is our sanctification. We all struggle in many ways, right? This is what Peter is doing. Yes, he has true faith. Yes, he is a believer, but he's inconsistent. He's inconsistent. He's not living according to his own profession. In this way, he's being a hypocrite. You're saying this about Christ, but you're not behaving that way in this regard because now you're rebuking him for saying something, which should be out of our mind. We should never think that it's a good idea to rebuke God or to accuse God of sin, right? Like Job did and Job, uh, and then the Lord uh, had to deal with that in regards to Job as well. So this is what is happening here with Peter. He takes him aside and begins to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, this will never happen to you. Now, we have to ask, does Peter have good intentions? Right. This is a common problem, because people will excuse bad behavior with good intentions. Well, he meant well. Well, does Peter mean well here? Is Peter thinking in his mind, um, I want all men to go to hell, and that's why I don't want Jesus to go and die on the cross. Because I know that's the only way that people are going to be saved from hell. And I really want everyone to go to hell, myself included, all my family, my loved ones, all these other disciples. So I'm going to tell him, don't go and die on the cross. That way everyone goes to hell. Do you think that's in Peter's mind when he's saying this? Do you think he's saying, you know, I know that Jesus is going to receive a name that is above every name. And the means that God has established for him to have that name is his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. And because I don't want him to have glory and honor, but I want it for myself, then I'm going to tell him, no, you shouldn't do this because I don't want Jesus to be supremely glorified. Is that in his mind, do you think? No, no way. Is he thinking, you know, I really love Satan. And I know that if Jesus dies on the cross, he's going to crush his forehead. And because I love Satan so much and we're best friends, I don't want him to be hurt, sin and death and Satan. Therefore, I don't want Jesus to go to the cross. No, of course not. Likely what's on his mind is he loves him, right? He's his Lord and master. But you're talking about dying and we don't, it makes us sad and sorrowful. So don't talk about these things, right? Don't, don't say this. How could this ever happen? But is Peter thinking through the implications of what he's saying? Because if this is followed through. If Jesus listens to the counsel of Peter, then where are we all going? We're all going to hell. Right? We're all going to hell. And does Jesus ascend as the Son of God and Son of Man, as the Christ, to the right hand of God the Father? No. None of these things happen. None. The, the whole purpose and plan of God for the creation of the world falls apart if Peter gets his wish here, what he desires. So he's not thinking correctly. He's not thinking right at all. His mind is not set on the things of God, even though we might say his intention is a good intention. Well, it's not. It's not good if the good intention leads to a bad behavior, right? Something that undermines the glory and the will of God. It doesn't mean, matter how good your intention is if what you're doing is evil and what you're promoting is contrary to the will of God. Now, I say this because I was reading recently, I don't read John Wesley uh, for my sanctification or benefit, but so that I can understand what he is saying. And it was on my mind recently because of Christian perfectionism, Christian perfectionism, which teaches that a person can be perfect. And Wesley wrote a book called A Plain Account of Christian Perfectionism, where he taught that in this life, a person, a Christian, could become perfect, that they could be sinless. But Wesley admitted that a perfect Christian could still make mistakes, but it wasn't a sin because the motive was love. 
Well, under that uh, definition, then we would have to say that Peter didn't sin because the motive is love. But that's not the way Jesus treats it. That's not the way he deals with it at all. So notice what Jesus says. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Here he addresses Peter by the name Satan, right? He's talking to Peter. He's not talking to Satan, the invisible one, right? Who he can't see, though he is addressing him as well. But he's talking to Peter and he's calling and addressing Peter as Satan. So we have to ask the question, is it a sin to call someone Satan? If they are lying, if they're being deceptive, if what they're promoting is contrary to the will of God. Is it a sin to call a believer Satan if that believer is promoting something contrary to the will of God? No, it's not the case at all because Jesus does so here. Now, he's not doing it carelessly. He's not doing it rashly. He knows what he's doing and he wants to show Peter how serious, how grave the implications of what it is that he is saying. This is a major sin, a major error that Peter is promoting to Christ. Also notice in John chapter 8, Jesus addresses the people in this way as well. And these are also those who claim to be his disciples. In John chapter 8, John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. So he's talking to Jews who believed in him, but then after the heat gets turned up and they begin to blaspheme, in verse 44, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So here Jesus is calling this group of men of their father, the devil, that they are children of the devil because they're behaving like the devil, right? They're doing things that are true of the devil. They're speaking lies. Well, that's the same that Peter is doing here. Now, in the case of John 8, those men are unbelievers. They're not true Christians. They're not true followers. In this case, Peter is a true believer, but temporarily he's behaving like a child of the devil. He's not behaving and thinking, speaking like a child of God. So Jesus addresses him as such. And he says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. A stumbling block to keep him from doing the will of God, right? An obstacle in the way. Jesus has his face fixed like flint to the kingdom of God, to go and to do the will of God. This is all that's on his mind. He wants to stay on the straight and narrow path. His desire is to do the will of him who sent me, to who sent him into the, into the uh, world. But here now is a stumbling block in the way to cause him to stumble and fall on the path or to turn aside from the path. Not that Jesus would ever do that, but it's still, it's in the way, right? And he doesn't want to have to deal with these things, especially from his own disciples, his own followers, right? And if Peter is saying this to him, then maybe he's saying it to the others as well. And it's going to be detrimental to their faith. It's not good for anyone for him to be spouting out and saying these kinds of foolish things. And so Jesus says, you are a stumbling block to me. Luke chapter 17 verses 1 and 2, tell us that stumbling blocks are sure to come. It's impossible for us to go through the Christian life without having stumbling blocks in the way. However, we should make sure that we ourselves are not a stumbling block for another, that causing someone to be tempted to sin. Luke 17, 1, he said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, then he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Here, it's better to be killed, according to Jesus, right? If you have a millstone on your neck and you're thrown into the sea, 
you're going to die. You're going to drown to death. That's what's going to happen to you. He says, it'd be better for you to be dead than to cause one of these little ones to stumble and sin. Well, what about the Lord Jesus Christ to cause him to stumble and sin? Again, not that it can happen, but he is putting a stumbling block in front of him. This is the gravity of what's happening here. That's why Jesus is dealing with it so severely and poignantly, right? In order to make sure that the leaven is excised from Peter and from the rest of the group. Also notice he says, what is at the heart of what is going on here? You're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Right? Your mind is not fixed on the word of God. It's not fixed on the will of God, but rather you're thinking just of your own interest, of the interest of man. You're not thinking big picture. You're just thinking temporarily, what's best for you, what you want, what you desire, and you're not thinking about God's interest and the will of God and what God has determined. And here we see that man's interest, right? Man's interest, as it comes from the flesh, is aligned with the will of Satan, right? Because those two are in league together, the flesh and Satan. And that's why he says, he calls him Satan, but then he says, your mind is set on man's interest. Because the world, the flesh, and the devil, these three are in unison together. They are allies in league together against the will of God, against God, against his Christ, and against the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God that is dwelling within us. And we have to fight against them. So whatever comes from man then is aligned with Satan. You're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. James chapter 3, 13. James 3, 13. speaks of this wisdom that comes from man or comes from the earth. And it's also demonic. James 3.13 Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit uh, is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So the wisdom that is prompting Peter to rebuke Christ is not coming from heaven, but it is from the earth. It is natural. It is demonic. It is sinful wisdom that is leading him to speak so carelessly toward Christ, to say these types of things. And it's not good. It's not good and it's not helpful for him and it's not helpful for anyone else. Jeremiah chapter 17 as well. Jeremiah 17, verses 5 to 8. Jeremiah 17, 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and will not, and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. So there, the contrast between trusting in mankind and trusting in the Lord, right? In here, Peter's interests are coming from man not coming from the Lord. And it will lead to ruin and misery instead of the blessing of God. So Jesus rebukes him for this uh, in order to deal with it properly. Then verse 24. Here, not only is the cross of Christ for Christ, but it's also for all of us. We cannot be adverse to the cross of Christ. We cannot be adverse to him going and dying on the cross as was stated here to Peter, nor can we be adverse to it ourselves. We must also take up our cross and follow him. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, 
take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will repay then every man according to his deeds. So here Jesus is preaching to them the necessity for them to take up their crosses as well and follow him. And notice he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, this coming after me is salvation. That's what he's talking about here. He's not talking about greater discipleship. He's not saying that there's some people who are going to be saved and they're going to make it to heaven, but they're not going to get any rewards. But then there are other people who are going to have me not only as their savior, but also as their Lord, right? Have you heard this false theology, lordship theology, where you can have Jesus as savior, you'll get into heaven by the skin of your teeth, but then there are other people who later in life can make a greater commitment and have Jesus not only as their savior, but also as their Lord. And they're the ones that want to follow him and take the Bible seriously and take the things of God seriously. And that's what we should all aspire to. But it's okay if you don't, you're still going to make it to heaven. This is commonly taught in Armenian churches today. It was even taught in the church that I grew up in, in some regards. Well, here, when Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he's talking about salvation. Anyone who wants to be my disciple, anyone who wants salvation, who wants to go to heaven, who wants to enter the kingdom of God, this is the expectation, right? This is true for all of his people, all of his disciples or followers. This must be true of each and every one of us if we want to be saved from our sins. Not that this is what saves us. It is not our resolve or our following of Christ that saves us, but this is the proof, the manifestation that we have true faith, that we have true faith in the true Christ. We must deny ourselves. We must take up our cross. We must follow Christ. This is the expectation for all Christians, not just some here and there. And what he means by this is that whatever is sinful in us, the sinful self must be crucified. Anything contrary to the will of God must be crucified. And even if necessary, if it requires our physical life, if it is called by uh, God for us to die for Christ, for us to lose our life for Christ, right? If the only way we can save our physical life now is by sinning against Christ, then we have to die. We have to be willing to die. Now, again, in terms of the history of the Bible, right, it's rare, right? It's, it's a few and far between of people who actually die for Christ. This is the exception to the rule. But there are times where that is happening. And if that comes upon us in our generation, then we have to be willing to die. Yep. We have to do, if it requires going to prison, we have to go to prison. If it requires the plundering of our property, we have to give it up. Whatever it is that would keep us from doing the will of Christ, we have to give it up. We have to be willing to die in that way. That's what he means. And then day in and day out, whatever is sinful, we have to reject and we have to overcome it and we have to pursue the kingdom of God. And this is daily, right? We have to take up our cross daily and follow him. Not six days a week, not five days a week, not one day a week, but every day. Every day we have to follow Christ. He is our Lord and master. We have died. And we no longer live, but Christ lives within us and we are to live the life of Christ. Jeremiah 6, 15. Jeremiah 6, 15. Here is a, an example, a negative example of people who refuse to do this. Okay. Jeremiah chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. Thus says the Lord, stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. I set watchmen over you saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not listen. This would be the same as deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. 
And they say, we will not follow you. We will not deny ourselves. We will not take up our cross. We will not follow you. But we can still have the blessing of God. That's what people want. That's the same that's happening here. He's expecting them to obey God, to follow the will of God, to listen to the word of God, to do what God tells them. And they are so brazen in their obstinacy to say, no, we will not do it. We will not follow you. This is why Jesus has to put these expectations before us because people want to skirt around it and find ways to make provisions for the flesh. Right. But we can't do that. Also, a positive example, Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, 37. Here, they do listen and they do repent and they do crucify themselves and follow after Christ. They deny themselves, they take up their cross and they follow Christ. Acts 2, 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Notice the difference between this response and what we just read from Jeremiah chapter 6. In Jeremiah, they said, we're not going to do it. But here, they're saying, what do we need to do about this? Right, brethren, what should we do? What should we do? In light of what you've just told us, Peter said, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So here, they listen. They listen, and they are, though again, they're not being put to death here, but they are denying themselves, taking up their cross, and they're following Christ. And then some of them will be put to death, and they're willing to do that, right, in order to be faithful to the Lord. So this is what is the expectation. This is the expectation. We must consider the cost of following Christ, right? We have to... We have to count the costs and see whether or not we are willing to do so. Luke chapter 14, 25, there Jesus says such. Luke 14, verse 25 to 33. says, now large crowds were going along with him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king? When he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000, or else, while the other one is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. So there, we have to consider what it is that Jesus is calling us to do. We have to give up everything for Christ. Be willing to give up everything for the Lord. Now, why is this so important? Why are we not foolish to do this, to follow after Christ in this way? Verse 25, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If we wish to save our life, Meaning, if we hold on to our life now, our temporal, physical life, the life that we have on this earth, according to Moses in Psalm 90, 70 years or by reason of strength, 80 years. If we hold on to this life now and we say, no, I don't want to give up my life. I don't want to die. I don't want to deny myself. I don't want to follow Christ. I want to be my own master. I want to chart my own way. I want to do what is right in my own eyes. So I'm not going to give up my life and yield it to Christ. If that is your attitude, then what's going to happen in the life to come? You're going to lose your life. You're going to go to hell for all eternity. 
But if you lose your life now, if you say, yes, I want Christ, I'm willing to die to Christ. I want him to live in me. I want to do his will. I don't want to have my own thoughts. I want his thoughts. I don't want my own values and goals. I want his values and goals. I want to live the life of Christ. And I'm giving my life to him, and I want him to live in me. You give up your life now to Christ, then what will happen in the life to come? You'll gain your life. You'll gain eternal life, right? You will enter into the kingdom of heaven. We cannot love our life more than Christ, right? And this is why it says in Revelation 12, 11, that they did not love their life unto death, right? They loved Christ and they were willing to die for Christ. And they entered into the kingdom of God. And we have to do the same as well. We have to be willing to lose our life in order to gain Christ. Why should we be willing to do this? 26. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Right? What benefit is it? Right? This is the problem many people have. They can't imagine. Right? I have to I have to be faithful to Christ. I have to do what he tells me to do. I have to give up my sinful friends, my sinful family, my sinful associations, all the sinful things I love to do, right? I don't want to do that. That would be miserable, right? I can't just uh, sleep in on Sundays and watch football all day long. I have to go to church and go spend time with these people. It would be miserable for them to do that, right? So they can't imagine that and, and lose all my possessions, give up my life, give up all these things. Well, what profit is it even if a man gains the whole world even if your possessions are the entire world and you say, no, I cannot part with the world for Christ. Well, in the end, you're going to lose your soul. You're going to go to hell. And how many people in the history of the world have possessed the whole world? Who has owned the whole world in the history of the world? Right? No one's ridiculous. No one attains to that. What we attain to is a very, very small portion of the world, if any at all. Right? Most people in America are living in debt. They're like negative. They're on the negative scale. They don't have anything. And yet they're unwilling to give up their debt, their nothingness, in order to follow Christ. Right? Even if a man, even if it was possible for a man to gain the whole world, even that would, be, would not be a good exchange for your eternal soul. Going to hell for all eternity. What will you give? What is valuable enough in this life that you can say, I made a wise decision. You know, yes, I'm in hell for the rest of eternity, but it was worth it because I had a great time for those 20 or 30 years of my life. That possession, that gold, that silver, that uh, jewel, wh whatever possession it was that was so great to me, it was worth going to hell for all eternity to enjoy that for the few short years that I had it in this life. Is there anything in this world that is worth going to hell over? No, that's the point that Jesus is making. What will you give in exchange for your soul? You see how irrational it is? It's irrational. It's contrary to, to logic and to reason for a person to exchange their soul for some temporal fleeting pleasures, possessions in this present life. And this is what many, many people do. They are unwilling to do so. If you save your physical life by denying Christ, then you will be condemned to hell for all eternity. You will lose your soul. Physical life is temporal, right? And again, this isn't happening even at our birth, right? Maybe it doesn't happen until you're 40 or 50 years old. So what do you have another 20, 30 years of life? You're going to exchange 20 or 30 years of life on this rotten earth for eternity in hell. And yet, isn't this what many people do? They do it all the time. It's very foolish and it's irrational. It shows that people are fixated on this immediate temporal life, right? Immediate gratification, instant gratification in this life. They want comfort and ease now. They have a momentary delay in their suffering, but ultimately it's going to lead to eternal destruction. Right? If a person, say there was a person who had the option and they were before the judge and the judge told them, okay, you have two options. Either you can go to jail today 
and you're going to be put in jail this very moment today, and you're going to be there for an entire week, okay, you can have that option as a punishment, or you can go home today and you can have a week of freedom, but then after that week, you're going to be put in jail for the rest of your life. So you can go to jail today and be there for one week, and then the rest of your life you'll be free, or you can be at home and be free for one week, but then the rest of your life you'll be in jail. What person would choose uh, the latter, the, the, the worst of those two options? Who would say, I would rather be free for a week and go to jail for the rest of my life than to spend one week in jail and be free for the rest of your life? No one. But this is what people do with eternity. And that's, that's longer than your life, right? It's forever and ever and ever. Now, why would someone choose this poorly? Why would someone behave so foolishly and so irrationally and even contrary to their own best interest? Right? Because typically, people act according to their best interest, but not in this case. Well, 2 Peter 1, 2 Peter 1 verse 9 tells us why. 2 Peter 1, 9. says, for he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Blindness, short-sightedness. You can only see what's right in front of you, which is this life, but you're not thinking eternally, right? That's why a person behaves in this way. They don't have an eternal perspective because the spirit has to give us that. They don't have the spirit of God teaching them. Then another passage, Deuteronomy 29, verse 18. Deuteronomy 29, verses 18 and 19. It says there, So that there will not be among you a man or a woman or a family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations, that there will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood, it shall be when he hears the words of this curse that he will boast, saying, I have peace, though I walk in the stubbornness of my, heart, of my heart in order to destroy the watered land with the dry. They are this rotten, uh, poisonous fruit and wormwood that is there in the heart is that he hears the curses of God against sin, but he convinces himself in his heart that I'm going to have peace even though God has promised that I'm going to have a curse. No, no, it's going to go well with me. I don't have anything to worry about. This is the way that people think. And they will always have many false teachers who will come along and coddle them and tell them you can have the best of both worlds, right? Easy beliefism that all you got to do is say this prayer, uh, do this little dance, right? Uh, do this or that, go through this ritual, and you're going to make it to heaven and everything's going to be all right. You don't have to deny yourself. You don't have to do that. Just... Just give a little bit of money to the church. You know, do the best that you can and everything is going to be all right. All right. Jesus says that we have to die now to live for eternity or we can live now and die for eternity. That's what Jesus says here. You either die now and you live or you live now and you die. But false teachers tell us you can live now and you can live then. You can have the best of both worlds. You can do whatever you want now and you can still Make it to heaven. This is what is essentially the basis of all false religion. You can have the blessing of God while living in sin. But Jesus says, no, you cannot have that. We must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Isn't this what Satan said in Genesis 3 verse 4? You shall not surely die. You're not going to die if you disobey God. Actually, you're going to be blessed. You're going to be in a better state if you disobey God. And that lie has been perpetuated over and over and over and over and over and over again in the, throughout the history of the world. Oh, Jesus, well, that's not what he really meant when he said, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. Right? He didn't really mean that. He just meant walk to the front, pray this prayer, and then you're going to make it to heaven. So people find many ways to corrupt this, and we cannot listen to them, right? Because the Son of Man is going to come in his glory, and when he does... He will repay each man according to his deeds. Those who denied themselves, took up their cross and followed him. He will repay them. He will reward them 
they will enter into the kingdom of God. Those who did not, they will hear the words, depart from me, you accursed, into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This is the way that it will be. Then verse 28, truly, truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Here, I take this verse to be a reference to what comes next week into chapter 17, uh, that he is talking about the transfiguration. Not, not meaning that the kingdom is coming in its full and final form, right, now during their life, but there are some here, his disciples, three of them, Peter, James, and John, who will go with him up onto the mountaintop and they will get a preview or a glimpse of the Son of Man in his glory. Right, Jesus will reveal that to them momentarily on the mountain, and they will see that before they die. Before they die, and before they see it on the day of resurrection, it will be revealed to them momentarily on the Mount of Transfiguration, and that's what comes uh, immediately after that. Okay? All right, so we'll stop there for tonight, and we've got some time uh, for any questions or comments about the passage that we looked at tonight. Sure. On this passage? Well, the, just the topic of what his disciples knew. The, the yeah, I was thinking about him on John 3. This is John 4. <laughs> okay, read it. So you, you, quoted, you went to John 20, and he says, uh, the, the verse is, so the disciples, or no, verse, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. But he says, neither Peter nor John understood that scripture said Jesus would rise. This is evident by the reports of Luke. Jesus had foretold his resurrection, but they would not accept it. By the time John wrote his gospel, the church had developed an understanding of the Old Testament prediction of Messiah coming up. So, the last part was interesting that it wasn't until John wrote the gospel that the John church developed an understanding of the, res the sufferings and the resurrected Messiah. And if you read him on John 3, was the passage I was thinking of, he talks about there that when Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, he's talking about the, um, the millennial kingdom. Mm -hmm. The millennial kingdom. I don't know if that's in the, in the study Bible or if that's in his commentary. But, but that's not what he's talking about in John chapter 3. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about the kingdom of Christ. Not this kingdom, millennial kingdom for the nation of Israel only. He's talking about salvation and the kingdom that all believers are in, right? Do you have it there? Yeah, so the verse is, unless you're born of the water and spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Or no, I'm sorry, it's earlier. Unless you were born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. He says, in context, this is primarily a reference to participation in the millennial kingdom at the end of the age. Fervently anticipated by the Pharisees and Sadducees. No, no, that's not what he's talking about. So anyway, those that, but that's because of this theology he's holding on to, dispensationalism. That it's his dispensationalism that's forcing him to interpret these passages in this way. Yeah, and that's what he said in John twenty that the church developed the understanding. So. There's no way that the Old Testament saints could have developed an understanding of the death and resurrection because that's not what they were thinking about. They were only thinking about, like you said, earthly, the earthly kingdom. Because mm -hmm. they were separated, they were separated by dispensations. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That's it's it. The, the account of Luke 24 says that the, the apostles already didn't. They hadn't developed the. What John MacArthur says, developed understanding. Jesus revealed it to them in Luke 24. He opened the apostles. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures about his death and resurrection. So they didn't have to develop it. Jesus opened their minds to it and they taught it about it. Right. Years preaching Acts, so I mean, I don't see how they could have taken any of that. Yeah. Right. So the, the, they're interpreting their 
lack of understanding, their unbelief as lack of not lack of assess. Uh, they didn't have access to the knowledge because it wasn't in the Old Testament. But obviously they did, and Jesus expected them to know these things. And in Luke 24, he rebukes them for not knowing it, for being slow of heart to believe all that the prophets wrote. It's even worse than that, because he would say that the God's purpose in the Old Testament was those earthly things. Right. Not for his In that he would have ushered in his millennial kingdom in his first coming if they would have accepted him. And then the going to the Gentiles is a parenthetical, a parenthesis, to what he's doing with the Jews. So now it's spiritual, it's the church, it's the Gentiles, but then it'll come back to the Jews. Because that was the intended promise given to Abraham and to his posterity. The physical posterity, not spiritual. So it's a, again, they're not looking at the Bible as a whole. It's plan B. It's plan B, yes. Somehow God's plan A failed. <laughs> exactly. So now we've got to rush off. And <laughs> plan B, right. we got plan B. Yes, it's plan C, actually, if you plan take the Armenians, because plan A was Adam in the garden, yes, right. right? And then he failed. Yeah. So now plan B is uh, is uh, is the Jews, and then plan C is us. So there you go. Hey, but a good C. It's a solid average. I <laughs> Armenian definition Yeah, it's, it's, it's bad. It's bad. And it leads to many false implications and conclusions about the gospel, salvation. It just divides everything up. It's not good. So it's very dangerous teaching. Okay, well, we'll go ahead and stop there. And...